Thank you for being here. I am Samantha Ravitch, Chair of the Center for Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. At CCTI, we focus on both strengthening U.S. resilience against cyber challenges, as well as seizing the opportunities presented by emerging and innovative technology. FDD is a nonpartisan research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. We proudly accept no funds from foreign governments or corporations. I'm also a distinguished advisor to the CSC 2.0 project, which is pleased to co-host today's event with FDD. CSC 2.0 was established by the Cyberspace Solarium Commission and is continuing the work of the commission. I sit alongside my other former commissioners, Suzanne Spaulding, Frank Salufo, Tom Fanning, Patrick Murphy, and of course, the members of Congress, Senators Sass and King, and Representatives Langevin and Gallagher. Today, we have two of those members, Senator Angus King and Representative Mike Gallagher, here to discuss the 2022 annual report on the implementation of the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission's recommendations. Anyone who has ever worked with these two gentlemen will understand when I say that it is one of the great honors of my life to count them both as colleagues and as friends. They each have a rare and precious combination of life experience, intelligence, curiosity, compassion, and humility that is so rare and is so needed in our nation's capital. Senator King has been serving as Maine's independent United States Senator since 2013, before which he served two terms as Maine's governor. In his roles on the Armed Services Committee, the Select Committee on Intelligence, the Committee on Natural Energy and Natural Resources, and the Committee on Rules and Administration, he has worked tirelessly to strengthen America's national security and promote prosperity. He brought to Solarium the clear-eyed wisdom about the perils our nation faces if we don't harden the cyber infrastructure that underpins those two pillars of our country. Congressman Mike Gallagher has represented Wisconsin's 8th District in the U.S. House of Representatives since 2017. For seven years, he protected our country from adversaries as an active-duty United States Marine, including two deployments to Iraq. He understands the price of freedom at the granular level. But Mike is also a scholar with a PhD from Georgetown. If anyone knows the sources of strategic adjustment to deal with emerging threats, it's Mike. Read his dissertation for more about that. We are also pleased to have Tim Starks here to moderate the conversation. Tim writes the daily Cybersecurity 202 newsletter at the Washington Post. It is a must read to understand not only the news of the day, but what it means and how it drives policy discussions. Tim previously was senior editor at CyberScoop and ran Politico's cybersecurity newsletter. I see a number of his successors in the room today who I'm sure will pose thought-provoking questions during Q&A. Before I turn this over to the people you actually came to hear, let me underscore a few points. The original mission of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission was to, quote, develop a consensus on a strategic approach to defending the U.S. in cyberspace from significant cyber attacks. We clearly met our mission. Over the course of the commission, we developed 116 recommendations, many of which were accompanied by model legislative language. But as Patrick Henry once said, the battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, and the brave. Cyberspace itself and the tax against it are moving and evolving. It is not enough, it will never be enough, to reach a consensus and craft needed legislation. Implementation and execution of the legislation is needed. And so the second annual report, which we just published under the expert guidance of Admiral Mark Montgomery and Jiwan Ma, assesses each Cybersecurity Commission recommendation. Have they been implemented? Are they on track? Has progress stalled? Are, are there significant barriers to implementation? These rankings were the result of hundreds of conversations between and amongst commissioners, staff, government representatives, subject matter experts, and many others outside of CSC. I urge you all to read the assessment, but let me give you some top-line figures. Of the commission's original 82 recommendations, nearly 60% are fully implemented, or nearly nearing implementation, and more than 25% are on track to implementation. Last year at this time, when we published the first annual assessment, only 35% were fully implemented or nearing implementation. 
So with that, I now turn it over to our panel to discuss where we have been, where we are, and where we are going in our work to meet the urgent challenges facing our nation. Thank you. Thanks, Susan. Thank you, Samantha. And good morning, uh, good morning. Congressman. Good morning, Senator. Uh, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine of, uh, for events like this is when they never ask the big question that's in the advertising for what, what it's about. So let's just start with that big picture. Uh, how resilient are we in cyberspace today? More than we were, <laughs> but not good enough. More than we were compared to, say, five years ago. Uh, a, a couple of observations. Uh, I, I do think we're better off on, on a number of levels in part because of the implementation of a lot of these recommendations. For example, the creation of the National Cyber Director, the development of a national cyber strategy, which is he's working on right now, his office is working on right now, uh, uh, the development of a Bureau of uh, Cyber in the Department of State, confirmation or voted out of committee, uh, a director for that. So a, a, lot of, a, a lot of progress. The other thing that's sort of an intangible that I've noticed, I don't know if you have, Mike, but there's a much higher level of understanding of how urgent this problem is in, in, among, in the Congress. Uh, it used to be I would go up to people and start talking about them and their eyes would sort of glaze over. Now I've got members coming up to me and wanting to get together, wanting to have meetings. For example, Mike Rounds, a Republican senator from South Dakota, who's the ranking member on this uh, cyber subcommittee of the Armed Services Committee, is having regular meetings in his office of, of a variety of people talking about these issues. It's a much elevated discussion. And uh, I, I think that will manifest itself in, uh, in additional policy uh, implementation and, and, and adoption. Final point, Tim, as you know, one of the real problems in this area is that this isn't traditional conflict. This isn't army against army, navy against navy. The battlefield is the private sector. 85% of the target space is in the private sector. And it's an unusual situation where we have to work out a partnership between the federal government and the private sector to effectively defend the country. And that's still a work in progress. Uh, I think the private sector is getting it. Some areas, some, some areas are way ahead of others. Uh, and some aren't, aren't doing so well. And then the final step is, you get down to the desktop. All of our work, all of our legislation, all of our appropriations, everything else are no good if somebody in a, in a major energy company hits on a phishing email. It, 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 you can lose the whole thing right there. So it's a very complex problem that involves a new concept of the government and the private sector working in partnership, which doesn't come naturally to either party uh, in order to confront this, this, this issue. So the short answer to your question is, as I said at the beginning, we've made a lot of progress, but as Samantha said, this is a problem that, that isn't going to go away and it's not going to be the same tomorrow as it is today. Uh, I agree with what Senator King said. Maybe just add a, a few points. Uh, not only is there a greater awareness among our colleagues in the House and the Senate, but perhaps that is a function, of, I think, of a greater awareness among the American people. Uh, I mean, everyone uh, you know who has a cell phone, particularly anyone who works in a, a business. It doesn't need to be a massive Fortune 500 company. It could be a small business in, in Northeast Wisconsin. I think now understands the salience of, of cybersecurity or just the the threats that are out there uh, in cyberspace. So you know, I, where where are we along the sort of like the 12 step program of resilience? I don't know. At, at a minimum, we've admitted we have a problem and. Uh, Perhaps we've recognized we, there, you know, there's a higher power in the form of Angus King. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, not only, um, I, I think, uh, you know, are we taking steps uh, as a commission and as a Congress to improve our resilience? Uh, I think uh, my sense is that um, a lot of the dedicated cyber warriors at, at NSA are, are building upon the foundation of, 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 of concepts like uh, Defend Forward, hunt forward. We've learned some, some hard lessons uh, over the past five years in particular, and, and General Noxoni and his team, I think, are applying those lessons uh, around the world. So I think that's improved uh, our resilience. And then just finally, to, to, to dovetail off everything Senator King said about, you know, the dilemma of deterrence in cyberspace remains, which is, you know, so much of it is playing out in the private sector. And if you read our, our initial report, I think you'll see a, a, a genuine attempt to strike the right balance between you know, the federal government, you know, 
kind of nudging the private sector to take cybersecurity more seriously without having an overly onerous approach and, and dictating to the private sector everything that they uh, must do. So that, that's, a, that's a, a, a tough balance to strike. That's a, a problem that remains. Um, but I think we're, we're, we're at least heading uh, in the right direction. Yes. Uh, Senator, you, you mentioned uh, Chris Inglis, uh, been in the office a little bit more than a year. Uh, one of your top, if not your top achievements, I think some would argue, uh, is getting that office created or helping get it created. And getting Chris appointed. And getting Chris appointed, sure. A uh, little bit of nepotism sort of in the family, if you will, because he was a solarium commissioner as well. But what I wanted to know is, what do, what do you think of how he's been doing? Can you point to a tangible, and I, this is for both of you, of course, but can you point to a tangible difference that that office has made, keeping in mind the short short time he's been there? Well, I, I, it, when, you, when we set up a, let me back up. One of the reasons to, that we set up this office was that cyber was scattered all over the federal government, and there were different authorities and different agencies, and you know, com competition and lack of coordination. So when you create a, 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 a head of that, um, part of it is that new office finding its footing with regard to all these other agencies, and the other agencies saying, yeah, okay, there is somebody that has this overall responsibility. I think the best sign of success or of progress was the fact that the president gave Chris the pen on writing the new cyber strategy, which is in progress, which will be done in a, in a matter of, I think, a couple of weeks or a month. Uh, that's an indication of the recognition of the status of this office, that it's not just a, uh, something that Congress imposed on the White House. And I have to tell you, from having worked through it, and I, I think Mike will agree, I can remember a lot of phone calls. First, we had to persuade the Trump National Security Advisor that this was necessary and why it wasn't uh, uh, an encroachment on the, on the National Security Council. Then the election came, and then we had to do it all over again with, with uh, Jake Sullivan and, and the Biden administration. So it wasn't easy to get uh, the, the, the White House to accept this new position, uh, and, and, but, it, but it's happened. And I think that uh, I think that's a, an indication that uh, that office is having an impact. And Chris has called. He's finally he's built his staff. He got he's gotten funding. And uh, my sense is that he's settling in now. You know, there's still going to be tensions and who's who's in charge and that kind of thing. But I think uh, he's worked out a good relationship with Jen Easterly and Ed Newberger. That's the important. Those are the important top relationships, so I, I feel like they're on the right track. I would say in addition to having the pin on the national cyber strategy, which is, is absolutely essential, as Senator King mentioned, uh, two other areas where he's already had an impact is uh, kind of tackling the cyber workforce issue head on. He's in a variety of, of things to proactively uh, do outreach on that topic. Obviously, it's not something that can be solved with a silver bullet you know, solution coming out of the White House or Congress. Uh, but also my understanding is um, he actually has productively worked with uh, OMB in order to kind of really established guidelines for various funding goals uh, among all the agencies that play uh, in cyber. So I do think he's having an impact. Obviously, this is very early stages for the Office of National uh, Cyber Director. I remember we had, we had a event kind of honoring everyone that worked on the commission, and, and Chris was there and kind of gave, gave us uh, like uh, a little... Uh, a little memento from the Office of National Cyber Director. And I think if memory serves, he had kind of fished the material for that out of the trash in the Eisenhower Executive Office building. So <laughs> right. clearly, you know, this, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of resourcing the Office of National Cyber Director. But uh, Chris is, is the perfect person to do that. Uh, he is uh, he just, I think, it has the right temperament, obviously the right background. And I think it's fair to say, and push back, Angus, uh, if you disagree, we expect him, you know, because we have confidence in him as an honest broker, to come to us and say, okay, here's what's working and here's what isn't working in terms of this initial model for the Office of National Cyber Director. This, this you know, we, we got it passed in legislation, but it's still going to be an iterative process going forward to figure out precisely the level of authorities and uh, resources that that office needs to be successful. That national cyber strategy both of you mentioned, do you have any insights into what will be in there? Do you have any insights into what you think should be in there? 
I think it'll be an exact copy of our original. <laughs> I mean, why bother to rewrite a lot? I mess with perfection. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I honestly, I, I don't know. Uh, but I'm sure that the, the, the broad outlines will be what, what we all understand uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, resilience, uh, norms and, and, and uh, norms of behavior, standards of behavior, and, and deterrence and, and cost imposition. I, you know, I think that's going to be a, a part of it. I'm hoping that it will be a little clearer on the deterrence, on the cost imposition piece, because I think that's been a gap in our strategy uh, going forward. Although the president has, has, I think, has significantly helped by outlining, you know, what's off limits and, and putting in some lines about where civilian infrastructure and that kind of thing. So, uh, but I, I haven't, I don't have any inside uh, inside information about what's going to come. Uh, yeah, neither do I. I. I guess what I hope will be in there uh, is a, you know, some nod to the, um, the signaling strategy that we've called for in the final report. And Senator King and I sent a letter to the White House asking them to move out on, on a, uh, a more transparent signaling strategy in cyberspace. Uh, second, you know, I mean, let's, you know, Chris obviously was, was a, a very active uh, member of our commission and, and influenced the strategy that's in the final report. So it wouldn't shock me to see the basic idea of layered, layered cyber deterrence um, that is in uh, our, uh, the Solarium report find its way into the national uh, cyber strategy. And I think third and related, uh, you know, that one of the ideas behind that is that you're, you're not gonna have perfect deterrence in cyberspace, right? I mean, in contrast to strategic nuclear deterrence, there's just gonna be a level of uh, a failure. Uh, so you need to have a respectable posture uh, of deterrence, and that is kind of where the layered strategy um, comes in in order to get at that. So that's sort of what I hope will be in it, but uh, we'll see. As well as just uh, you know a, a recognition of the brilliance uh, prose that was in our of course initial. naturally Before, yeah. why not? Uh, I want to try to make this one a quick one, um, and I realize it's, it might be a little difficult because it's a little it's like asking a parent to choose their favorite child. But <laughs> if there is one thing that you that you have not gotten done yet that you would pick that you would like to do, if you had to pick one thing, what would it be? Oh. Well, maybe this is a cheat because we, we technically got this done, but we still need to do oversight. And I, I want to highlight. I think this. I'm thinking of like one recommendation per se, perhaps. What's that? I'm, I think I'm thinking of like one recommendation. That yeah. You're having, yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I'm with yeah. continuity of the economy planning, CISA still needs to do it. And I just want to highlight the role that was really Samantha Ravitch. She she was the brainchild behind all of that. So that's an area where we we got we got it passed, but we still need the actual plan to come out. Uh, of CISA. So, and that's just a reminder that even, you know, as my, my, my good friend Angus King often says, execution is just as important as vision. We need to make sure that that is executed appropriately. If that didn't satisfy you, I can come back and think it of did. a different one. Yeah. I think the biggest missing piece right now is almost done, and that is uh, the Cyber Diplomacy Act. Uh, the establishment of the, of the Bureau in the Department of State whose job it is to coordinate international activities with regard to cyber and establishing international standards, uh, international coalitions. Uh, multilateral sanctions are always more impressive and more uh, oppressive than unilateral sanctions. So engaging the international community, if you think about it, we had a thousand years to work out the law of war and get to the Geneva Convention and other kinds of, of those kinds of rules. We've had 25 years to work out the law of cyber war, and we're not there yet. And we need to figure out what's off limits, what, what, are, the, what are the cyber version of chemical weapons. Uh, and, and, and so I think this, the, and where we are is the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week confirmed, uh, pe uh, voted out Nate Fick as the direct director of this bureau, which the administration created on their own to their credit. But they also reported out the Cyber Diplomacy Act, which gives more uh, full, uh, full, uh, fulsome description of the work, a more full description of the work of the of the bureau, and I think that's the the one of the major pieces of unfinished business. There's also uh, uh, strategically important critical infrastructure, Bureau of Cyber Statistics. There, there are three or four things that are still cooking that that we need to get done. Let's talk about systemically important critical infrastructure or Pisces or SIEs, depending on who you Sicky, talk to. we call it Sicky. Sicky, yeah. Um, 
that is one that there has been some progress in terms of getting it included in the House version of the NDAA. Um, it's also one where there's been some industry pushback. Um, could you talk about whether you think that pushback is fair and how you might be trying to overcome or address it? Well, so the pushback we heard from the banking sector in particular was, hey, we're already you know, awash in regulation. We're already investing a lot of, of time and money at this problem. You know, why should we have to deal with this other, you know, this, this new layer of, of regulation? And, and, and we didn't dismiss that argument. I think we've made a, a good faith uh, attempt to meet them halfway and kind of have a, in the latest iteration, and Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, kind of have a process through which the reporting they're already doing would be counted as satisfying some of the sicky reporting. Yay or nay, you can, you know, okay. Um, uh, so that's one. Uh, some of the pushback we heard from the, uh, the software industry, um, you know, we're, we're trying to internalize and, and meet them halfway. I guess the bottom line is, is we, we've, we've, we've modified it substantially. We've listened to our colleagues that uh, had objections, and I'm, I guess, cautiously optimistic that there is, is a path forward. And I guess it gets to the, the point I made at the beginning, which is, you know, we're, we're trying to strike that balance, right, between the federal government saying, hey, private sector, we need everybody in the C-suite to understand why cyber is important, but we also don't want to, you know, get the regulatory framework uh, wrong. So, um, I don't know. I, I think I think we've made progress. Uh, let's hope we can we can uh, we can get it done. Certainly, I saw some clear attempt to address their concerns and what the language that got into the to the to the NDAA. But even as recently as last week, they seemed still unhappy. Um, don't know if there's anything that could be done. I don't know. It, maybe on the Senate side, you could take something up. Well, obviously, we're going to try to ameliorate their concerns, but without gutting the bill. I mean, that's the that's the challenge. I I, I should say. One of the really hard parts of this whole thing is the multiplicity of jurisdictions in the Congress with regard to this subject. In order to get our first set of, of uh, recommendations adopted in the, in the National Defense Act a couple of years ago, we had to get 180 clearances <laughs> from minority, majority, subcommittee, committee. You have no idea what a nightmare that is. And, and there were a couple of ones where we ended up with one person on one committee, it was cleared like by nine other people said, no, not gonna do this. Uh, and it, do, you remember and it, what it, do you remember what it was? I do vividly, but I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> uh, Disappointing. But, uh, but that's one of the problems. I mean, the least likely recommendation of our Solarium Commission is to set up special committees on <laughs> cyber in both houses, similar to the intelligence committees. In 76, they realized that intelligence was spread all over the, the Congress, and they set up the, the committees on intelligence in the Senate and the House to consolidate that jurisdiction. I don't know how they did it, because trying to do that with cyber, we have found, is virtually impossible. Nobody wants to give up their, their little piece of the, of the jurisdiction. So I, um, that's, that's one of the real holdups. I feel like I have a suggestion for what happened there and what has also happened when any other time Congress has created new committees. Uh, there were some pretty big scandals in the 70s yeah. uh, on intelligence that seemed to create a lot of momentum. Yeah, it was the church committee. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Then there was, you know, I hate to bring it up, after 9-11, the Homeland Security Committees were created. Yeah. And I don't know what kind of event you think it might take for Congress to say, we really have to do this. We, tr we tried to sort of paint a picture of what such an event might look like in the, the opening pages of our report with a sort of dystopian future uh, teasing out the aftermath of the cyber attack. But we're obviously hoping to, to prevent that uh, from, from happening. Uh, as, as we became fond of saying, it's, we, we want to be like the 9-11 Commission just without the cyber 9-11 happening. Um, but it's a challenge. And, and, and to cut across the committee jurisdiction that Angus talked about, I think it's important to recognize how pivotal um, our colleague Jim Langevin was in doing that. Um, but, you know, he he is the chair of the Cyber Subcommittee and the Armed Services Committee, and because of both that position as well as just his, um, you know, indefatigable uh, uh, efforts uh, in this space, we were able to get uh, a lot passed. And I don't think it would have well, been possible without his help. One of the reasons this commission was so successful, and by the way, if we were a center fielder for the Yankees, given the implementation percentages, we'd be. There's no end to the money we could make. I mean, if you're batting 600 in the in the major leagues, you're you're in you're in the stratosphere. But one of the reasons it worked so well was the unusual structure. 
and having starting with four sitting members of Congress and then four members from the administration, from the executive, and then six members from the, from the outside. And so in a sense, our commission started with four fifth columnists, if you know what I mean. In other words, we had, we had active members of Congress. Mike's on armed services. I'm on armed services. I'm on intelligence. You're on foreign relations. I I'm think. on intelligence now. I wasn't oh, at the time. Okay. No. So uh, it, it gave us a, we, we weren't on the outside knocking on the door. We had in, people inside, and I think that really helped uh, in order to, in, in terms of getting these things moving. Jim Langevin was, a, was an absolute star uh, given his position on the Armed Services Committee, and, and uh, his, he's, he's retiring, which is a huge loss to huge the loss. Congress. To extend the baseball metaphor, the value of a replacement is, is tough on that one in yeah. Congress. And two of our fifth columns just walked in, the Honorable Mr. Murphy and Frank Salufa. Oh, yeah, great, great work. Yeah. Hey, there you are. Perfect. Patrick and, yeah. and uh, Frank, good to see you. I'd like to, um, there were a few people who submitted questions beforehand. Uh, I'm going to combine a couple of them. This, this, the, here's something from Sarah Friedman of Inside Cybersecurity, Debbie Tyler Moore with IBM that they wanted you to discuss. CISA has released a request for information uh, and details on 11 listening sessions to implement the March incident response law. What do you think about these efforts and what should CISA be keeping in mind as it moves ahead? Also, can you comment on any feedback uh, we've heard so far from all the potentially affected parties? Uh, it's a long listening session process. I get it for those of us who feel a sense of urgency, but. Um, I think it's important to to get it right. So I think it's a, a useful effort, and you know I have confidence in in Jen Easterly and, and her um, her ability to to get this right. So um, I, I think it, it's a positive positive step forward. I I think it's important for a, a, a subtle but essential reason, and that is remember I said at the beginning, a lot of what's going on here is trying to build a relationship of trust between the federal government and yeah. the private sector, and for Jen to be taking this time and having these sessions and consulting and listening is essential to that building that relationship of trust. And, and if she just said, okay, here are the regs, boom, I, I think it would have been a disaster. So uh, as Mike says, it's gonna certainly take a little longer to do it. But um, again, this is, we're trying to do something new here and uh, to, Anything that's done, and by the way, CIS is doing a great job. I participated in Maine. They're sending people around the country to meet with people in the private sector to have these seminars about cybersecurity and uh, just alerting, you know, businesses in, in Portland, Maine, uh, about what the risks are, what CISA can do. They're really doing some serious outreach, and it's, I think it's working, and it's essential in the long run to give people the confidence to report, you know, to, to, to give them the, to share the information, to share it in real time, to get ready for this joint collaborative environment, which we hope we can establish where people can share in real time. Um, but it's, you know, it, there's this, there's the law and then there's the sort of human infrastructure and, and attitudinal infrastructure that has to be built. And that's, I think they're doing it the right way. This one's from, <clears throat> it's related, it's related, it's from Patrick Gall at the National Se Te Technology Security Coalition. They ask, what the proliferation, with the proliferation of cyber incident reporting legislation across multiple agencies, because this isn't just something that's happening with the law, um, what are your thoughts about harmonization? I'm, I'm in, I'm in favor of, of <laughs> I'm, harmonization. I'm, I'm yeah. for it. Yeah, I'm for it. Uh, and again, this is, uh, you know, an area where you know, empowered CISA director, and remember, elevating and empowering CISA was a key, key finding uh, in our in our report. Uh, we've gotten a lot of that accomplished in legislation, but there's more that needs to be due. Uh, who has a productive working relationship with an adequately resourced and empowered national cyber director, I think can go a long way in, in achieving that harmonization. But again, and I, I sound like a broken record, but if we're going to establish credibility and trust with the private sector, we can't inundate them with regulations from six different agencies. They're just going to, at some point, they're just going to throw up their hands and say, you know, this is not work it. We just fill out the form and move on. So again, I think some kind of harmonization. I mean, that's, 
That's, that's one of the reasons we created the National Cyber Directorate, was to bring some coherence. And, is he involved uh, in that process? I guess, is he on the commission that uh, is looking at harmonization? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. If he isn't, I'll call him this afternoon. Get on it, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is one from Natalie Alms with FCW. <clears throat> Uh, CSC 2.0 released a workforce report this year. What are the top priorities you'd like to see addressed on workforce, and what are you uh, working on going forward? Well, I'll, I'll start uh, just in general by saying it's one of the most serious problems we face. Everything we're talking about doesn't work if you don't have people that know, know how to deal with this issue. And it's a huge shortage. I've seen various estimates, 30,000, 50,000, 100,000. There are tens of thousands of vacant positions in the, both the private sector and in the government, in the military. There are a lot of initiatives. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, for example, has a, a, a proposal to create a, what amounts to a cyber West Point uh, a, a, a school program uh, for, for young people to be able to, to, to learn about the subject, learn about what to do, and then have a variety of options when they get out. I can't really give you a uh, probably as fulsome a response to what's actually happening. I do know that there's a lot of work going on uh, in, in this subject, but ultimately we need uh, young people to view this as a, as a career option. I mean, it's, and, and in Maine, for example, at one of our branches, the University of Maine, we have a, a cybersecurity uh, graduate and, and undergraduate program that's, that's fully subscribed. Uh, and and that's, what, that's what has to happen across the country. I said three things come to mind. One is we want to see a you know a, a tripling or a quintupling down on the cyber core service program. That was a key element in our our final report. We've made some progress, but it's not sufficient. We think that's a useful model that can be expanded. Um, second thing is, um, and I may be going a little bit astray from the report, uh, the the Solarium report language, but it's been my observation on the Armed Services Committee that we've actually given the Pentagon enormous authorities to, to hire people from all over and they can make them majors, lieutenant colonels, even make them admirals if they wanted to get really uh, creative. Uh, I'd like to be an admiral. Yeah, that's right. I'd like to be a viceroy. That's mm -hmm. always appealed to me. Uh, um, but our sense is they're not really using those authorities aggressively. Why is that? We want to understand that. Is it just because that's not the right model? Is there institutional resistance, status quo bias? That, that's an area where I think we don't need to pass legislation. We just need to do basic oversight to understand. And then the final thing I'd say is uh, we had an interesting uh, Solarium-related event in my district in Green Bay. Uh, Microsoft has formed a partnership with the Packers um, to do kind of like a tech innovation hub and incubator. And the president of Microsoft came. It's right next to Lambeau Field. That's right. That's right. Um, Angus came and visited. We went to a game together. Uh, his wife's a Packers fan. I always need to note that. Um, uh, the we then we went with the president of Microsoft to a, a, a local high school where Microsoft is investing in in basically a, a cyber apprenticeship program. And when we talk about apprenticeship. Usually, we're talking about the trades, right? Reviving manufacturing, welding, pipe fitting, things like that. All all great stuff we need, particularly in the industrial Midwest. But you know, I think the, the apprenticeship model in cyber is interesting, particularly for those really talented kids who have a unique aptitude and, and maybe this the traditional path at a, a four-year liberal arts college is not necessarily the best path that makes that harnesses their, their cyber talent. So those are kind of three areas that let, stand let, out. Let me touch again a little bit on the military. A couple of problems is that, again, we're talking about change here, and change is hard. Um, you don't need to be able to do 100 push-ups to be a, an effective cyber warrior. So, you know, the question is, how does the military modify their, their requirements uh, and who they're looking for? But also, the military, and this just struck me, I mean, maybe it struck everybody along before me, but the military is one of the few organizations in our society that doesn't do lateral hires. You, you join the military at the age of 22, and you stay until you're 60, and you move up. But, uh, you know... They, we've got to be able to have them think, oh, here, we need a cyber, let's bring a person in who's 45 years old who has a lot of experience with Microsoft and, and you know, either bring them in as a civilian or make them a colonel. I mean, the, the it, it's, we've got to rethink how the structure works and also the criteria because a cyber warrior may be the, may be the 
the person that wins the next war, and it may be somebody in a wheelchair uh, who couldn't possibly do a pull-up, but who has the, the, the brains and the talent and the imagination to, to uh, defend the country. So I, I think that's something the military, and, and the military is not an institution that, you know, is uh, anxious to, to embrace change. But I think that's, that's part of what's got to happen. Right. <clears throat> We're about to move into a Q&A uh, phase, but I wanted to get one last question off, perhaps make it a two-parter. Looking at what you have on your agenda going forward with CSC 2.0, what, what work most enthuses you or excites you that you really want to dive into? Uh, and I don't, want, I don't know how to ask this one exactly. I've struggled with it. Do you worry about a shelf life? Do you worry about people tuning out uh, you know, what you're saying? Do you worry about overstaying your welcome or, or, or thinking, you know, we've accomplished our mission. Let's stop. We're, what's the end game of sorts? Yeah. Well, the reality is this is a problem that's not going to go away, and it's probably going to get worse. And... I don't think there's any, I think there's still an expanding awareness. Uh, certainly among policymakers, the general public, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is uh, we need a UL for home routers. We need, we need labeling and, and that's a, that's a, that, that's not, there's no legislation involved there. Somebody needs to pick that up. Maybe this organization should set up an office of cyber security certification. Uh, but uh, so so there's plenty left to do. I don't think. I mean, there's always a danger of sort of relaxing and saying, "Well, we've done all these things, and therefore we're okay." Unfortunately, I think we're going to get periodic reminders, like Colonial Pipeline or OPM or those kinds of things. That, that's going to keep happening, and I think people. I, I, I met last week with the main credit unions. Okay. They're being attacked hundreds of times a day. Main credit unions. This isn't, you know, Con Ed or Wells Fargo. This is these are little community institutions. So they know what's going on and they're very aware of it. Hospitals, Mike and I did a letter recently on hospitals. Hospitals are sitting ducks. And uh, that's an area of great concern. And they're starting to, to figure it out. So the Short answer to your question is, I don't think this issue is going to go away, and I don't think we're going to go away, and I don't think the concern is going to go away. So in addition to the low-hanging, well, not low-hanging, but let's say the legislative uh, issues that are in the red zone that we need to punch into the end zone, um, so we've mentioned SICKI, we've mentioned Joint Collaborative Environment, Cyber Diplomacy Act. I, I'm, I'm most interested, as I mentioned before, in doing oversight of, of the continuity of the economy planning, of the, the cyber force structure assessment, that we've mandated, as well as digging into the national cyber strategy and really kind of um, having a debate. I think that's going to be interesting intellectually. Intellectually as well, I, I think there's more work that needs to be done on, um, you know, really uh, teasing out the connection between cyber war and kinetic conflict or where cyber operations could have kinetic effect, right? Particularly as we think about uh, what is perhaps our most stressing national security problem, the potential confrontation over Taiwan, what is the role in, of cyber in that, right? Could, could, could the Chinese potentially attack some of our aerial and seaports of debarkation as part of an overall effort to put us on our heels uh, in a Taiwan confrontation? I think there's a lot of really fascinating work that could be done at FDD in the broader think tank community and in Congress that really excites me. And as for the shelf life, uh, though I, you know, my, the shelf life of my political career grows, you know, smaller by the day. Uh, it says the, yeah. this guy's running unopposed. Yeah. <laughs> he has no no primary, no general election. How the hell does that work? I mean, yeah. Uh, family uh, <laughs> delivers babies and has a pizza restaurant in Green Bay. People, people feel indebted to you after that. But... Uh, I don't know. I, I think there's still interest among among our colleagues, and uh, I enjoy working with Angus King on national <laughs> security problems. So continue doing that. All right. Let's let's Q and A. It looks like we do have some uh, microphones available, and we already have one person booked. We'll come to you next. Sarah Cleveland, Inside Cybersecurity. Um, we're coming up on um, it's been over a year on the cyber executive order um, EO fourteen zero two eight, and there's was another uh, memo released last week on securing software. How do you think implementation has gone on that so far? And do you think that there are areas 
related to that that need to be improved or worked on more? Oh, gosh. I'll get the hard one. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think there's more work that needs to be done on implementation. I, I think the overall framework in, in both documents you, you referenced was, was good. Um, I, I think there are lingering questions remaining about um, compliance or, or understanding within uh, the private sector. Um, and I just, it kind of brings up a point that we didn't get to mention. Um, part of the reason that we are advocating for the Bureau of, of Cybersecurity Statistics, and that remains, that's an issue that still needs to be uh, uh, fixed, is to be able to have the data that would send signals to the cyber insurance market, for example, uh, and make that work. And that's not working right now. So there's a lot of areas that kind of relate to those executive orders that remain unresolved, and we have we have work to do on that, obviously. I think the executive orders are major steps forward. And uh, I, I don't have any specific criticisms or suggestions, but I think I think that national cyber strategy will sort of inform the next uh, the next round, but I, I'm, I'm pleased that the administration, I think this administration has taken this very seriously from the beginning. Uh, once we got Jake Sullivan to understand why we needed a national cyber director. Uh, but I, I think they've, they've been very active. Ann Neuberger's worked a lot with our allies. Uh, working internationally has been very successful. Uh, the administration has been very, I think, forward-looking on this. And, and just things like the president a year ago Telling Putin point blank, here's where here's where the red lines are, you know. Do not attack our electric infrastructure. Do not put civilians at risk in cyber. I think is uh, I think has been has been uh, the, the the right approach. That question, by the way, was exactly how it's done. If people could, you know, keep keep it to an actual question, I always like that when that happens from audiences. Um, I think we're up here next. Thanks, Sam Vitzner. I'm with the. Space ISAC and MITRE, but I'm also an advisor to a commission. This is not a question. I'm sorry about that, but it's an observation, and I would, I would ask the commissioners to, to take it to heart. I've been teaching for a number of years as an adjunct at, at Georgetown. I've sent a number of my students into the government and a number into the private sector. And I thought that the, uh, I thought that the, the workforce report was excellent, and I was pleased to, to review it. But I think a part that's going to need more work is what happens when these people come into government. The young people I've sent into the private sector get interesting, meaningful work. Yeah. A number of the people I've sent into the federal government are asked to continue to do essentially scut work. They're not, in essence, being given an opportunity to, uh, to, to use the analytic or technical skills that they developed. And I think it's demotivating. So once people are brought into the federal government, if, in fact, we think that they have a special capability to offer, they should be given the opportunity to offer that capability as soon as possible, rather than being treated as, well, you're 23, you're a GS7, you're a GS8. You know, let's wait until you're 39 before you let you do something meaningful. And I'll stop at that point, but I do hope that we can take that problem, uh, we can take that problem on and give these people meaningful opportunities. Thank you. I think that's a fabulous observation. and. I suspect that it varies from place to place. If some of your students went into Chris English's office right now, I suspect they'd find they were getting meaningful opportunities. On the other hand, if there are other agencies that are sort of tired and aren't engaged that much, I'm sure what you say is absolutely accurate. And again, that's really one of the hard parts of this is it depends so much on the leadership, the attitude of the people. We can pass a perfect law, but if it's poorly implemented or if the leadership isn't committed, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. That's a great insight though. One is going into Chris's office, so I've got there you fingers go. crossed. Well, let, let us know. <laughs> and we'll, I, I know a guy if that doesn't work. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, something Petraeus always used to say in the context of counterinsurgency, which is, um, you know, rank is nothing, talent is everything. And it strikes me that that applies even more so to, to cyber. And your point is, all the more important because I think we concluded that even with flexible hiring and pay authorities, you just never, you know, NSA, CISA, DOD, never gonna be able to compete with Amazon, Microsoft when it comes to salary. But it's right? the mission. Exactly. It's mission they can compete on. So if you allow young, talented kids to work on a cool mission and test them at the limits of their intellect and energy, well, that, that, then you can compete for talent, I think. Sorry. Uh, yeah, looks like the mic's going back there, but then we'll come back to the second row. Last question. Oh, no. Okay. Sorry, second row. Oh. Two more. We'll, we'll be brief yeah, yeah. in our answers. 
Make them easy. I hadn't put up my hand, but hi. Thank you so much for having uh, me, Maggie Miller uh, with Politico. Um, wanted to know um, how the uh, conflict in Ukraine has potentially influenced the work of uh, CSC 2.0 and uh, what we're going to see going forward just coming from uh, seeing cyber warfare in the field this past year. Thanks. Well, the, my first reaction is the dog that didn't bark in the yeah. night. When the Ukraine activity started, when the war, the invasion started, I think everybody anticipated cyber was going to be a huge piece. And generally, internationally, but also within Ukraine, Ukraine was much more resistant and resilient. They did attack Ukraine uh, through cyber, but it, it wasn't as successful as anybody expected. So the, the first thing we've learned is that you can defend yourself. And that work that we did, uh, NSA did and others did, really helped, I think, uh, the Ukrainians to, to resist. The second piece, and I can't, I can't prove this because it's a negative. I believe that we would have seen more of a cyber intrusion into the, into the West, but for Putin is afraid of Nakasone. I think, I think Putin is deterred, frankly, by, by the capabilities that we have and by what Nakasone and what NSA demonstrated in 2018 in the midterm elections. Uh, so I, I think deter there's been, now I, again, I can't prove that because they didn't attack. My, my, my belief is that an attack might have been more likely but for uh, the concern of the Russians that they were uh, at risk. Uh, and in that case, I think deterrence has made a real contribution. Let's make a few related points. One, I, I do think it uh, it enhances the the value of our, the hunt forward teams we have. As of August, we had what they'd done thirty five hunt forward operations in eighteen different uh, countries. I think we have new relationships with Lithuania and a few other countries uh, in Europe. That's all good. Um, I think if you ask people that are are involved in that, they would say one thing that surprised them positively is just some of the capabilities in cyber that our our European allies bring to the fight, and we need to do a better job not only of helping our allies, but leveraging, you know, capabilities they have that could help us. A third point that maybe, I, I don't know if it's an area of disagreement, but um, yeah, in my, in my bias is that I think part of the reason deterrence failed on February 24th was because we didn't sort of have a, a hard power aspect of deterrence. I just think it's a reminder that, you know, as we talk about cyber and, and it's obviously related to hard power, you know, there are broader deterrence questions that are going to require actual guns, bombs, missiles, uh, and human beings. Um, so it, it put differently, I think a, a cyber deterrent strategy needs to be connected to an overall deterrent strategy. Uh, and, and that's an area where I, I, uh, I think we still have some lessons that need to be learned from what happened in February 24th that could then be applied to Taiwan in particular. I, I tried to get Paul Nakasone's term changed to eight years in the National Defense Act this year, but I was unsuccessful. Mm. It turns out we are able to get in just a little bit more Q&A. Thank you, you guys, for everything you've done. Uh, John Francesco from Fortress Information Security. Uh, our company protects the supply chain of more than 40% of all electricity production in this country. Our primary concern is the vulnerabilities that we keep buying. Mm. Uh, really powerful provisions you guys have put in, NDAA 889, but these aren't being enforced. Do you guys have plans to introduce some more thorough oversight over some of the existing supply chain regulations that'll prevent the acquisition of uh, Chinese solar cells or uh, Chinese software going into Joint Strike Fighters and things like That's, this? Yeah, the Joint Strike Fighter, yeah, I dug into this issue. I, it was a, a, it was like a, a lube tube or, I don't know. That, but I, take, my my yeah. nightmare is somebody in Beijing pushing a button and all the bolts fall out of every tank yeah. in the American <laughs> ours. No joke, they, they turn off the coils. Yeah. yeah. But in the F-35 example, what we discovered in this particular case is that uh, part of the reason this went forward is because the initial regulatory or compliance framework goes back to 2003, right? And our approach to China in 2003 was dramatically different than our approach to China in 2022, right? We were still laboring under the notion that we could integrate China in the global economy. They become a responsible stakeholder. So we're having to go back, and, and that program's been going on for two decades, uh, and, and figure all this stuff out. So it's not a good answer to your but, question. But, but you're right. Supply chain is, an, is a huge problem, because all it takes is one chip 
or one valve or something in a very, a, as you know, a, a product that has 100,000 pieces. Uh, you guys have done actually a good job of getting stuff through, and shockingly, it's awesome. But then getting the executive branch to apply. Yeah, the enforcement piece is, piece is what he's in concern about. So I'm hoping that you guys will have some regular like, well, oversight Here's what I would invite you to do is to be in touch with us about where you see the shortcomings so that we can we can uh, know yeah. where to direct our, our energy. The we, dilemma, as indicated by what's on Angus's tie, which is the Constitution, is that it's a different branch that ensures the laws are faithfully executed. So we have to ensure we have to do oversight so that they ensure it. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to go to the last question. Hi, guys. Uh, thank you for taking the time. My name's Natalie. I'm a reporter at GovExec. Uh, you've mentioned those hiring and pay flexibilities at DOD. Uh, some, including CSC 2.0, have recommended that Congress extend those to other agencies beyond DOD and DHS. Uh, so I was wondering what you guys think of that idea. Well, as, I was quick, as I indicated before, I, I, I would want to understand, I, I think it's it makes sense to me, but we also want to understand why DOD is not sort of using those aggressively. But the idea still makes sense, and I, you know, right now I would say yes, let's expand it because uh, we need all the the talent we can get. But we have this this problem where we, we don't understand why DOD isn't using that. I agree with Mike, but before we close, I, I, I want to acknowledge Patrick Murphy and Frank Salufo and Samantha, who are all members of the commission. We had. Uh, we're now on something like meeting number 53. Uh, and these were substantive one, two, three hour meetings and really uh, and high level of attendance. And then our executive director, Mark uh, Montgomery in the back, uh, who's been absolutely brilliant. I have the, the smartest thing we did, Mike and I agree, was to, to hire Mark and uh, has done so much to assemble a, a really all-star staff. And, and, you know, look, take a look at this. This is a, this is a major piece of, of work right here, and, and the original report is, is something that we, we're very proud of, and, and a lot of it is attributable to Mark and the staff. Uh, I just wanted to get that in. Yeah, well, I want to thank the... That's in lieu of a pay raise, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thanks, everybody, for attending. Uh, thanks, Congressman. Thanks, Senator. Uh, if you want to read more, cybersolarium.org is where you can see all these things. Got it. Thank you all. Great.